0: Good morning. My name is Tracy Doan, and I am a small group leader in high school. Our scripture reading for today is from Ephesians 5:21 through 6:9. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives would submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present herself to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. The passage in our reading today from Ephesians is what Bible scholars sometimes call a household code. And there are actually three of these household codes found in the New Testament, this one in Ephesians, another in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which he also wrote from prison, and a third in 1 Peter. And these household codes outline specific responsibilities for the various members of the ancient Greco-Roman household. But what a lot of Christians today don't know is that these household codes were actually extremely common in the ancient Greco-Roman world. The earliest of these household codes go back to the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Pagan Greek philosophers who lived more than 300 years before Jesus was born and before Paul wrote these words. In fact, Aristotle's household code in his work, Politics, has the exact same three categories that we find here in Paul. Husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and masters. And in addition to these Greek philosophers centuries before Jesus... There were many Roman writers who wrote at the same time the New Testament was being written. I can almost picture Plutarch's household code, the advice to the bride and groom being able to be purchased from Amazon in a special gift edition so you could present it to a newly married couple in ancient Rome. These household codes were part of the fabric of family life in ancient Greco-Roman society. And Paul is writing his letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus who had grown up in a culture where these household codes from Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, and others had dictated household expectations and responsibilities for more than 300 years. And the thing to know about these household codes that we find outside of the Bible is that all of them are based on an assumption. An assumption that the world is structured according to a rigid and fixed chain of command of who's in charge. And this particular assumption comes from the Greek and then the Roman view of God and the spiritual world. Both the Greeks and the Romans believed that the spiritual realm was a fixed hierarchy of different gods with, of course, Zeus or by his Roman name Jupiter being at the very top of this chain of command. And they believed that that just as the spiritual world had this spiritual chain of command, that human society mirrored that And so the human world had a chain of command with free men at the very top, like Zeus or Jupiter was, followed by women, followed by children, followed by slaves. For instance, Aristotle puts it this way in his work Politics. He says, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. And then later, the courage or the virtue of a man is shown in commanding the courage of a woman in obeying. Now, we read these statements today, and we might find them outrageous or countercultural or offensive, but they were part of the very nature of the ancient Greco-Roman way of looking at society. In fact, every ancient culture that worshiped multiple gods, where there was a fixed chain of command in their belief system, also believed that society was a fixed chain of command as well, with free men at the top, then women, then children, then slaves. The word we use today to describe this way of looking at the world is patriarchy or patriarchal. And so in this passage from Ephesians, Chapters 5 and 6, Paul uses the basic language and structure of these ancient household codes to describe how followers of Jesus can live out their faith in Jesus in their families. Now, what exactly do we make of this? reading this in the modern world. Well, Christians have approached these household codes in in one of three basic ways. Some Christians just ignore them. They get to that part of the Bible and they just turn the page and move on to later in chapter six. Other Christians see these household codes as God's endorsement of a kind of Christian patriarchy in the family. And so these Christians read these household codes as evidence that God's design for the Christian family is a kind of Christian patriarchy where where the husband is in charge of the family because he's a man and then his wife and then his children follow his leadership. This is the view I learned as a brand new Christian. This view of family life is essentially the same as Plato, Aristotle, and Plutarch, but it has some Jesus mixed in. Finally, other Christians, and for full disclosure, I'm going to be in this third category today, read these household codes on two different levels. On the surface of it, These codes use the same structure and language that the Greeks and then the Romans have been using to describe family life for more than 300 years. In fact, many Bible scholars believe that Paul is actually consciously emulating Aristotle's words from politics here in Ephesians 5. So on the surface, it appears that Paul is accepting and adopting the same framework of these other ancient Greco-Roman household codes. But then when you begin to dig deeper at a deeper level, you begin to see that Paul is actually redefining family life in a radically different way in light of the coming of Jesus. Now, why would Paul do this? If Paul doesn't agree with Aristotle's view of the spiritual world, and if he doesn't agree with Aristotle's assumptions and conclusions about family life, why would he mimic Aristotle's language and structure here? Well, I think there's a pretty compelling answer. When Paul wrote Ephesians, he was sitting in a Roman prison cell. He was awaiting trial on the charge that his message about Jesus was dangerous to the stability of Roman society. We know from the Bible that in the early days of the church that the message of Jesus was particularly attractive to those who were lower on the chain of command of ancient Greco-Roman society, particularly among women and among slaves. In the early days of the church, it was very common for wives to come to faith in Jesus apart from their Roman husbands, and for slaves to come to faith in Jesus apart from their slaveholders. And as the early Christian church began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, the Roman ruling class began to take notice. See, the Roman ruling class viewed any disruption of the traditional household chain of command as dangerous. And this actually goes back to the philosopher Plato. Maybe you studied his republic in high school or college. In Plato's Republic, he taught that the household is a microcosm of civilized society. And so, if there's any breakdown in the traditional chain of command of the household, Plato says that that was a very threat to the stability of society itself. And so, when Paul wrote in what's arguably his very first letter, the book of Galatians, chapter 3, these words, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those words would have struck fear into the hearts of those who read Plato's Republic and believed what Plato taught about the household unit. Paul's imprisonment, his impending trial, were proof that the Roman ruling class had become increasingly nervous about Christians. And so here in Ephesians and also in Colossians, another one of his prison epistles, Paul uses the language and the structure of these traditional Greek and Roman household codes in part to quell fears of the Roman ruling class who might read these words that they had about Christians. By using the language of Aristotle Roman non-Christians who would read these words might think that the Christians were not so dangerous to society after all. But I hope to show you today that when we really begin de- to dig deeper into these codes, they actually present us with a way of being families that is countercultural to these other household codes. Now, we've been in a series through Ephesians called Becoming. And last week, Pastor Greg talked about how we as Christians, when we encounter the gospel, we become children of light. And as we become children of light, we look less and less and less like the world and the culture around us. And one of the ways we live as children of light is in our families, We become God's family in our own family. And the general principle I think we find in this passage and throughout the New Testament is this. God calls us to live as disciples of Jesus in whatever household situation we might find ourselves in. God calls us to live as disciples of Jesus. Now, that may sound obvious to you. But the reality is that our homes are one of the most challenging and difficult places for us to live out our devotion to Jesus. I mean, who knows us better than the people that we live with, right? And we've also been ingrained in how to do family life from our own families growing up, from the various cultures that we might have grown up in. And so we all have lots of unconscious assumptions about family life that we carry into our own families. People who get married discover this very early on, from little things like which way the toilet paper should face and the toilet paper dispenser, to whether you should squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube or the bottom of the tube, to little things to big things like how to manage finances, how to to divide household responsibilities, how to raise kids. We all carry assumptions that we've accumulated throughout our lives into our households. And so we're called to live as disciples of Jesus in that context. I also phrase this principle this way because I know here at Lake Avenue Church, we have people in all kinds of household situations. We have both married people and unmarried people who are involved, committed members of Lake Avenue Church. And so the focus of this message is not if you're not married, you should be. The focus of this message is if live as a follower of Jesus and no matter what household, family situation you find yourself in, be faithful to follow Jesus in that setting. So with that in mind, let's look at how I, we might become God's family in our families by looking at the three categories that Paul uses here beginning with husbands and wives in verses 21 through 33. I've included verse 21 in our reading today because in the original Greek, verse 21 provides the verb for verse 22. Without verse 21, we don't know what Paul is saying to wives in verse 22. In Greek, the verse literally reads, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. So verse 21 provides the verb. And as Pastor Greg mentioned last week, in in the Greek, this word submitting is a participle and it is parallel to three other participles that come before it in verses 19 and 20. The, The word speaking, the word singing, and the word giving thanks. Just as speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and just as singing from our hearts, and just as giving thanks to God are evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit earlier in chapter 5, so also is submitting to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. So verse 21 presents mutual submission as a universal command for all followers of Jesus, no exceptions, both men and women, both husbands and wives. Submitting to one another is one of 59 different one another commands that we find in the New Testament. And these one another commands form the basic framework for how followers of Jesus Christ live out their faith in their relationship with other followers of Jesus. And they include commands like praying for one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, and here in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another. So Ephesians 5.21 means that Christian husbands and Christian wives will submit to one another as an expression of their loyalty to the lordship of Jesus in their lives. And then in verse 22, Paul addresses wives in particular to make sure that wives understand that their husband and their relationship to their husband is not an exception to that universal command. Submit to one another and wives, be sure to pay close attention that you're living out this command in your marriage, in your relationship with your husband. In verse 23, Paul uses an illustration. A Christian husband and a Christian wife in marriage are like a head attached to a body, just like Jesus is the head and the church is his body. Now, it was common in ancient Greco-Roman society for the language of headship to be used to describe the family. Look no further than Aristotle in his book, Politics. He says, the rule of the household is a monarchy, for every house is under one head. So Aristotle uses the word head to describe who's the boss. The person in charge. He he uses the image of a king with the king's subjects. Paul uses the same language Aristotle uses, but I think he means something very differently. You see, in the previous chapter of Ephesians, chapter 4, Paul has already used this word picture of head and body in a very different way than Aristotle did. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16 says this, We will all grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the way Paul talks about a head and a body in Ephesians isn't focused on who's the boss or who's the king. He uses it in chapter 4 to describe the inseparable oneness that exists between Jesus and his church. And I think he's doing the same thing here in chapter 5. He's using the image of a head and a body to emphasize the inseparable oneness that exists between a Christian husband and a Christian wife within the covenant bond of marriage, this unique relationship. In verse 25, Paul shifts his attention to husbands and urges husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In ancient Greco-Roman society back then, it was very rare to hear people talk about love in marriage. Back then, marriage was predominantly a contractual arrangement arranged by the community or the families or the parents of the bride and groom. And some couples might be fortunate enough to learn to love one another over time, but very rarely did someone marry for love. None of the ancient household codes that we find from the Greeks or the Romans talk about love and marriage. They're all focused on this chain of command who's in charge? But here, Paul commands husbands to love their wives. And just as Paul's command for wives to submit to their husbands is set within the context of this broader command to submit to one another, so also this command of husbands to love their wives is set within the broader context of the Christian command to love one another. There's really not that much unique that Paul says to husbands here that the rest of the Bible doesn't say about how all Christians should be treating each other. Like submitting to one another, loving one another is one of those 59 one another commands in the Bible. And this command for Christians to love one another is always rooted in the example of Jesus and his sacrifice. For instance, Jesus said in John 13, as I have loved you, so you love one another. Or earlier in this very chapter of Ephesians, verse 5, Paul said, Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. At the end of this section, in verse 33, Paul paraphrases the command to love your neighbor as yourself to saying this means husbands, love your wife as you love yourself. In other words, husbands, remember that your wife is your neighbor too. And so Paul takes this universal commandment to love one another that equally applies to husbands and wives and then reminds husbands to pay particularly close attention that they are living out this commandment in the relationship with their wives. Now, I think it's important that we don't push the analogy between husband and wife and Jesus and church too far here. The analogy of Christ loving the church to save her and to make her holy in verses 26 and 27 is simply meant to remind us that Jesus' sacrifice is the definition of Christian love. It's making the same point 1 John 3.16 makes when it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay ours down for our brothers and sisters. This is Christian love, not just in Christian marriage, but in Christian life, to love as Christ loves. And so Paul is not saying that a husband's love for his wife puts the husband in the place of Jesus in her life, as if he somehow makes her holy or saves her. I think any teaching about Christian marriage that places a husband in the place of Jesus is a form of idolatry. Christian husbands, no matter how godly they are, are still imperfect sinners, just like Christian wives are. We submit to one another imperfectly and we love one another imperfectly. So, what does this section teach us about marriage? I think it teaches us this God calls us to approach marriage with mutual submission and mutual love. Mutual submission to each other and mutual love for each other. Those are the two commandments that form the framework for what Paul says here. And once you begin to see this, you begin to realize that Paul is actually turning these traditional household codes of Aristotle and Plato and Plutarch upside down. Paul is subverting the, the pagan, Greek and Roman idea that the universe is a fixed chain of command. Paul is using the language of Aristotle to present a way of living as children of light that is countercultural to what Aristotle says. So as a pastor, let me say this to you if you're at Lake Avenue Church and you and your spouse are married. As a pastor, I am not going to tell you who should do what in your marriage, who should cook or who should take out the trash. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're married, it's up to you and your spouse to talk and to figure that stuff out. It's a part of your Christian discipleship. And we have a great premarital ministry here at Lake Avenue. We have a great marriage mentoring ministry under the leadership of Pastor Bill Mead to help you have those conversations. But that's for you to figure out. What I'll tell you is this. I think being a follower of Jesus in your marriage means making a commitment to mutual submission and mutual love. And from that foundation, you can build a marriage. And you can structure that marriage in any way that makes sense to the two of you. Your marriage might look very traditional. It may not. Your marriage may look a lot like your parents' marriage. It may not. You may decide to structure your marriage in a way that looks a lot like the culture or the community or the country that you grew up in. You may not. The way that you and your spouse build on this foundation may look different from a couple building on that same foundation sitting just the row down from you in worship at Lake Avenue Church. But it begins with this foundation of mutual submission and mutual love. Now let's talk about children and parents in chapter six, verses one through four. And I think one of the first things to notice in this section is that Paul actually addresses the kids in the congregation here. Paul's letters were usually read out loud during the church worship gathering. And the fact that Paul addresses kids in his letter reminds us that the Bible treats children as full-fledged members of the people of God. It's as if Paul is telling the kids in Ephesus, I see you. He urges kids to obey their parents, that this is consistent with the commandment to honor your father and mother. And notice that he he doesn't say to just obey the father as these ancient Greco-Roman household codes would do, but deeply rooted in his Jewish tradition, he puts father and mother on equal footing Paul is assuming here, of course, that parents, that this is a Christian family, that parents are seeking to raise their children in in a godly way. But then in verse 4, Paul focuses on fathers who in Greco-Roman society had the most power and authority that they shouldn't provoke their children to anger. Most ancient Greco-Roman household codes would say, fathers rule over your children because you're in charge. But instead, Paul here says to fathers, be gentle and restrained, wise and thoughtful. Bring your children up in the training and the instruction of Jesus. And so here's a second principle we learn about becoming God's family in our own God calls us to approach family life with mutual respect and nurture. Mutual respect and nurture. My friends, let me break it to you. There is no infallible way to raise your kids that will guarantee that they will turn out loving God and being good people. And so I'm not going to stand up here and tell you to be more strict or less strict. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you when your kids, if they're teenagers, should start dating or, or if you have a baby, whether you should feed her um, whenever she cries or put her on a schedule or how you should approach school decisions with your kids. What I'll tell you is this. God wants you to live out your devotion to Jesus with your kids. And it starts with a commitment to mutual respect and nurture. And if you're a child, God wants you to live out your devotion to Jesus in your relationship with your mom and dad. Being respectful and open to instruction, knowing that this is just a temporary season of your life. It'll be over before you know it. And before you know it, you'll be an adult making your own decisions. And I think this is a good time to mention, we have a lot of wise parents here at Lake Avenue Church. I I greeted our two Mothers of Preschoolers groups uh, last month and one of the things I said to them is, we the people of Lake Avenue Church have been making mistakes raising our kids for 121 years. We've learned a lot along the way. There is tremendous wisdom in this room, not just from our mistakes, but also from our victories, the things that we've done right. One of the division goals for Family Life Ministries this year is to charter a new parenting ministry team to make that wisdom more available to the parents at Lake Avenue Church. So stay tuned as they begin to unfold that. But it starts with mutual respect and nurture. And that brings us to the final pair, slaves and masters in verses 5 through 9. When Paul wrote these words, roughly one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And at first glance, Paul seems to be endorsing slavery. And again, I think this is intentional. He's writing from a Roman prison cell, awaiting trial to quell any fears that the Christian church was encouraging a slave uprising. But when you actually read what Paul says, He's actually subverting the very idea of slavery. On the surface of it, he says what Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch say, slaves obey your masters. But dig a little deeper. He seems to be saying, obey, not because any man owns you, but because you belong to Jesus. You are not property, You're a person, you're a servant of Jesus. And so if you find yourself as a slave, live out your devotion to Jesus. Be a servant of Jesus. But then in verse 9, he gets really radical. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way. Everything Paul says that slaves should do with masters Paul is saying masters should do with slaves. Then he reminds them do not threaten them, since you know that both their master and your master in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, in society back then, slaves and masters might be part of this Greco Roman chain of command, but not so in the church. Not so in the eyes of God. And, and masters might have power and authority over slaves in society, but Paul is saying they should remember that they are equal and they will be accountable for God for how they have stewarded whatever power society has given them. According to Baylor University professor Rodney Stark, it was these very words that would be the seeds that over time would grow into the Christian abolitionist movement. That it was Christians centuries later in England and America who meditating on what Paul is really saying here, reading it on this deeper level, would, would come to the conclusion that slavery is incompatible with the Christian faith and that it should be abolished. And today, Christians all over the world condemn the practice of slavery because of reading these words with listening ears. Now, it's tempting for us to skip over these words today because we may not see any overt examples of slavery in our own communities. But many of us find ourselves in relationships where people may have more power over us or we may have more power over them. I think of Christians who work in law enforcement or who work in prisons. I think of Christian teachers and college professors who are entrusted with students. I think of Christians in the military or who hold political office or anybody who supervises anyone in the workplace. We all find ourselves in relationships where there is a power differential that is unequal. So how do we become the family of God in those relationships? Well, God calls us to approach these unequal relationships with mutual equality and accountability. Equality and accountability. No matter what the power differential, no matter how slight or how big it might be, as followers of Jesus, there is no partiality with God. We are equal in the eyes of God. And so no matter what the power differential, we should realize if we have power society has entrusted us with, that we will be held accountable by God for how we have stewarded that power. Mutual equality and mutual accountability. These household codes are challenging to understand and to apply. They're an example of how Paul applied Christian discipleship to a very specific situation, to Christians living in the city of Ephesus where 300 years of Greco-Roman household codes had dictated and shaped their expectations about family life. And we've seen that the general principle is that God calls us to live out our faith, our devotion to Jesus, no matter what our household situation is. If we're married, that means approaching marriage with mutual submission and mutual love. If we're parents or kids, it means approaching family life with mutual respect and nurture. And even in these unequal relationships that we might be powerless to change, it means approaching those relationships with mutual equality and accountability. This is how we become the family of God in our own families. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we are not defined by the chains of commands that society gives us. That we are not defined by how other people see us. That we are no longer slaves to those things, but that we, Lord, are your children first and foremost. We are children of light. So, Father, help us live that way in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our families, and those who know us the best. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.